from Luminary Media and Jigsaw Productions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Facts, Hercule. Facts. Nothing matters but the facts. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth? I'm Alex Gibney, and this is Lies We Tell. Could you read the letter for us? Sure. I took this picture. I'm writing this on Saturday, 11-21-98 at 7 a.m. This list, in quotes, was in my husband's business daily planner, not meant for me to see. I don't know what it means, but if anything happens to me, he would be my first suspect. This is a story with a mystery at the center of it. The woman who wrote this letter... Her name was Julie Jensen, and it's not her voice you're hearing. Julie died just days after she wrote it. You know, it's, it's just like as a human being, I really want to know what happened. Reporter Colleen Henry read it for us. And uh, why it happened, more importantly, because that's really where the intrigue is. She covered the Jensen story for WISN in Wisconsin. It turns out Julie had ethylene glycol in her blood and stomach. What What is ethylene glycol? So ethylene glycol is that stuff you put in your car in the winter so that uh, everything doesn't freeze up. It's poisonous. I mean, it's poisonous. I keep that in mind all the time because I have a little dog, and apparently it's sweet, and dogs love it, and animals die from it all the time because it'll drip out of your car from time to time. And I had covered cases, actually, with evil people who would plant antifreeze to kill neighbors' pets and horses and things like that. So oh. it's, it's used to kill things. Had someone killed Julie? Was it her husband? You know, one of the pictures that was most used and made available to the media was one of Julie wearing a white um, collared blouse buttoned to the neck. Um, And she had this kind of sort of Mary Tyler Moore hairdo, but blonde. I mean, she had a beautiful smile on her face. She, you know, there was there was no intrigue there. They looked like the perfect couple, but there was a dark side to their marriage. What sounds like something out of a Hollywood movie, a pleasant prairie woman sent a letter to her neighbors saying she thought her husband was going to kill her. And then Julie Jensen was found dead, poisoned with antifreeze. All of a sudden, what seemed to be this idyllic life with this beautiful woman who's driving around in her little family van or whatever car she had with a license plate that says, my three Ds for daddy, David, and Douglas. You know, this this vision of this perfect family and really adorable kids. Um, It was just nothing perfect there. I mean, it had been really rotten for years. What should we make of Julie's letter and her suspicions about her husband? This mystery has continued to unfold for decades. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's mind boggling the turns this case has taken. And I mean, you've been working on this for what, almost 20 years? Yes. I mean, my God, this is like something out of one of these, you know, cheap bodice ripper mystery books. I mean, it has everything, right? And we'll get into these stranger than fiction details in this episode. But really, these juicy plot points aren't the reason this case has made such a big impression. See, Colleen isn't just a TV news reporter. Between the time Julie Jensen died and the time this case went to court, Colleen Henry went to law school. I just said I hit 40, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not dead yet. And the law school happened to be um, 
across the street from the courthouse because I would go to these evening classes and they'd want me in the six o'clock news and uh, I'd whisper, I'm just going to duck out for five minutes. I have to go to a live shot. And I'd run outside and stand at the corner and they'd point the, the camera. I'd be at the law school and they'd point the camera at the courthouse and I'd be live and then I'd go run back in and finish my class. As a seasoned crime reporter and fresh-eyed law student, Colleen had a front row seat on a trial full of fundamental legal questions. Questions that were being slugged out in the Supreme Court, even as the prosecution and defense tried to make their cases about what happened to Julie Jensen. I mean, it's fascinating, especially if you're willing to sort of work very hard at um, not getting sucked in by the emotion of it all. Every story so far in this series has taken as its jumping off point a lie. But in this story, we start with a question. How do we make sense of what is true? Our adversarial system is designed to give both sides a fair fighting chance at justice. But when we pit two versions of the truth against each other, how can we make sure the story is told to argue a side, to win a case, don't rewrite reality? I'm not talking about intentional lies or misconduct here, but something far more ordinary and even necessary. Omitting details to keep a jury from turning against a defendant. Suggesting scenarios to explain what could have happened. What keeps these stories from being indistinguishable from lies. We're going to delve into the story of the Jensen case and the legal battles surrounding it, which continue to this day by stepping back to 1998. My recollection is that my wife and I were out at a, um, a ball, a fundraising ball. and This is Bob Jamboys, the district attorney in Kenosha County, Wisconsin, at the time of Julie's death. Back then they had a pager, and so I was paged. And I had a cell phone that was about the size of a car battery. I was being summoned in to, for this suspicious death that had occurred in, um, in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. Rescue crews converged on this sleepy lakefront community to try to save a 40-year-old wife and mother. Julie Jensen didn't make it. But we didn't know then, at that point, whether it was a suicide or a homicide. Because the vast majority of people who die from ethylene glycol poisoning die from suicide or accidental ingestion. Of course, Bob's story is the prosecution's story. He has a very clear point of view here. I mean, I immediately had suspicions when I heard the story. But this case, despite the fact that all this time has passed, is still not settled in the courts. At the time of this recording, the legal outcome is still very much up in the air. So bearing that in mind, we're going to hear Bob's recollection of the immediate aftermath of Julie's death. This guy comes home, he he says his wife is very sick. She's barely able to breathe that morning. And instead of taking her to the hospital or calling an ambulance, he goes off and runs some errands and then comes back in the afternoon and finds her dead. Does that sound like a normal case to you? Does that sound like a normal thing for a normal husband to do? What kind of a husband leaves a deathly ill wife in bed, barely able to breathe, to go run errands? Who does that? On the other hand, this is Deja Vishni, an attorney who represents Mark. As this is all still an ongoing legal matter, we didn't get to speak with Mark. Mark was very upset when he discovered his wife, and he believed that either she had died from some kind of overdose or potentially that it was a suicide. So Colleen, our law school-trained reporter-slash-guide to this whole story, knows both Deja and Bob. Deja is a fireball, and really takes no prisoners. And Bob is very much the same way. Bob, though, has uh, Bob has a theatrical flair. I mean, this guy knows how to put on a show. Two stories faced off in court. One from Julie, one from Mark. Both offered an explanation of the evidence, a solution to the mystery. But to this day, I don't I don't know whether Mark killed Julie, and I don't know whether Julie killed herself, because I could see it going either way. This case is complicated on every single level. It was like a like a, a fifteen hundred piece jigsaw puzzle, where you didn't see the picture on the cover. Um, 
In a murder case, jurors may see this as some kind of murder mystery where they get to come in and solve the crime. But that's not what a trial really is. That's not what a trial is supposed to be. But this case shines a light on how trials often work in the real world. When Bob charged Mark Jensen with the murder of his wife, two extremely compelling, completely opposing stories about what happened unfolded in court. Now, clearly, both of these stories can't be true. But the battle over which plot points are important, the battle over the evidence, it's not just about this case. It has really serious implications for our legal system. And for us, that is where the bottom drops out. Let me make this warning right now. You're not going to want to listen to this with young ears. And some of the details are definitely not safe for work. One of the big fights that played out in the pre-trial hearing has to do with events that happened years before Julie's death. For a period of six, seven years, um, Julie was finding photos. There would be pornography popping up at their home. These were photos of erect penises and other porn, often photos of fellatio. Uh, Mark said he, he found some at his office and the police were called and asked to investigate. Julie was very concerned because she thought she might be being stalked by someone when she's home alone during the day. But the police weren't able to get to the bottom of it. Not officially. Ultimately, no one was prosecuted. However, at a certain point, the police came to believe, and and this was part of the testimony, that it was actually Mark who had been planting all this stuff. The prosecution introduced at trial a theory about Mark and all this pornography. And bear with me, according to this story, it really begins back in the early 90s. Early on in their relationship, Julie had an affair with this guy. Colleen heard about it early on in her reporting. I had heard about it from Julie's book club. And according to these friends, and eventually other testimony later in court, Julie had this one-night stand with this guy that uh, she was friendly with, and Mark found out about it. And and again, keep in mind that all this information comes from you know, her friends and family. Mark was so angry and resentful that he undertook this plot to uh, get revenge, I guess. And it it is kind of psycho conduct, you know, if in fact he was planting all this porn. Um, in the courtroom, this picture of Mark was emerging. Julie had said that whenever they went on vacation, he wanted to go to strip clubs. So there was just all this kind of seamy stuff that was probably common. I don't know whether, whether you want to call it normal, but far more common in marriages that, you know, people, some people really enjoy pornography or, you know, adult content. It was not illegal. It wasn't child pornography. And it, uh, you know, only added to the um, seaminess of the nasty Mark depiction. Mark's lawyers fought to keep these photos and these stories out of the courtroom. You know, it's prejudicial. But the prosecution disagreed. In the lexicon of the law, this is called other acts evidence. In other words, you can admit other acts evidence if it's relevant to motive, opportunity, intent, and that sort of thing. Bob argued that those details were important. Well, I don't know how much of this you can broadcast. For him, these were the very puzzle pieces that put together the larger story about Mark Jensen. Mark Jensen was very preoccupied with this whole thing about penises. The prosecution wanted to connect some dots to argue that it was Mark behind all the photos harassing Julie, because as it happened... We'd found uh, on that on his work computer... Hundreds of... Photos of penises. And these photos of penises were notable as they had all been well organized. He'd organized them into three files. According to testimony, there were 750 photos of penises organized into categories, average, small, and large having penis-centered pornography. It's just like, what does that have to do with whether or not he killed Julie Jensen? I mean, it was ostensibly to show that he had access to penis pornography and could have placed these pictures around the house. Uh, But it it just seemed really far-fetched. I mean, everybody has access to penis pornography. No doubt, when the police confiscate computers and search warrants, they find all kinds of things. But in most cases, this is the kind of personal information 
that is not brought up in a trial. What does it really prove? There was a pre-trial legal battle over the admissibility of these photos. Here's Bob, the prosecutor. That other ex-evidence in and of itself demonstrates this defendant's hatred for his wife, his torturing his wife because she had that one weekend affair in 1990 and 1991 and he could never let it go. No wonder Julie Jensen was unhappy. She was married to a man who hated her and who, and who tortured her. And Mark's trial attorney, Craig Alby. I think this is a, a smear campaign. He's trying to paint it. No, he tries to paint it weirder. He paint, tries to paint it more strange and strange. The court itself, I know, initially used the word deviant and then changed. Bob argued that these were links in a chain of evidence that connected Mark's behaviors with Julie's death. Mark Jensen was a meticulous note taker, and Bob, using information found on Jensen's computers, established a timeline. In the fall of 1998, Mark was having an affair, and the prosecution had uncovered a very important set of notes from a phone call Mark had with a coworker who, after Julie's death, he would later marry. And while he's talking to her over the phone, he had her describe to him in great detail the size, shape, and circumference of every penis that she'd ever encountered. Later that same night, the search history of the Jensen's home computer would show a sequence of searches, which, according to Bob, told a story. He's on the computer looking for ways to murder his wife. But then every once in a while he takes a break. He's looking up the, the personnel list for this place he works at, Stifle Nicholas. So, looking at the order of the search history, first was a search for the woman that Mark was having an affair with, and then... Then he looked up another name. The guy's name was... We're bleeping names here to protect privacy. Why was he looking up the name... The largest penis that... Described ever having encountered was the penis of... A guy that she'd had an affair with while she was in St. Louis. This is how we knew that it was Mark that was going into the internet looking for ways to murder his wife. Linking up those two disparate things, we had the motive for Mark to be doing this stuff. And for that reason, all of that evidence was admitted during the course of the trial. But there was a very good judge in the case who made some very difficult decisions, and this is one of them. This is Lisa Kern Griffin, a legal scholar at Duke University. Lisa is writing a book on truth and lies in the legal system, and it's Lisa who first told us about the Jensen case. The question of who was trying to hurt whom in the case became so central to which story the jurors accepted that you can see how the judge concluded that this was part of the story of their relationship, however dark it may be. With all the lurid material that has already been spread on this record, I find it hard to believe that some stored or printed uh, pornographic pictures are going to push the jury over the edge. I don't see it. These judgment calls are always a moving line. But the photos weren't the only tough call or the darkest part of the Jensen story. This question of how much and what kind of evidence the jury needs to see that is what becomes a 20-year battle in the Jensen case. And there was one piece of evidence in particular which became especially thorny. Julie's letter. You know, she's speaking to you from the grave. She demands justice. It's a letter from the grave. It's the voice of a victim from beyond. The debate about the significance and admissibility of this letter is why the Jensen case has stayed in the courts and unresolved for so long. It's, it's a little bit of a perfect storm. You have uh, the voice from the grave, which is pretty rare. You know, she demands justice. And you have Supreme Court decision-making that relates directly to the issues at the crux of the case, you know, percolating and popping up right and left all at the same time. The Supreme Court decision Colleen's talking about is a case called Crawford v. Washington, and it relates to Julie's letter. It deals with something known as the Confrontation Clause, and it really goes to the heart of the Jensen case and the big questions the story raises about the line between facts and storytelling in a trial. In this regard, Colleen was at the edge of her seat, covering the Jensen case as a news story and considering its implications as a law student. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was taking evidence. You know, it was fascinating. It was a great real-life experience, sort of watching it and understanding what it really meant. Because sometimes when you're not, when you're not 
when you're reading it in a book and you, you know, they give you the facts of the case, you know, without all the pathos, you know, you just don't really, it, it kind of escapes you. But this was a perfect way to sort of understand the value of the con- confrontation clause. It's like, wow. The confrontation clause is a constitutional Sixth Amendment right. In the simplest terms, it's the right to confront a witness who's accusing you of something. Which makes sense. Seems pretty straightforward. But there's always more layers. To start peeling some of that back, let's go right to what Colleen was pointing to. The pathos of the letter that Julie wrote. Just days before she died, she gave that letter in a sealed envelope to her neighbors, telling them that they should give it to the police in case anything were to happen to her. I don't know what it means, but if anything happens to me, he would be my first suspect. Our relationship is deteriorated to the polite superficial. I know he's never forgiven me for the brief affair I had with that creep seven years ago. Mark lives for work, the kids. He's an avid surfer of the internet. Anyway, I do not smoke or drink. My mother was an alcoholic, so I limit my drinking to one or two a week. Mark wants me to drink more with him in the evenings. I don't. I would never take my life because of my kids. They are everything to me, exclamation mark. I regularly take Tylenol, multivitamins, occasionally take OTC stuff for cold, Zantac, or Imodium, have one prescription for migraine tablets, which Mark uses more than I. I pray I'm wrong, nothing happens, but I am suspicious of Mark's suspicious behaviors, fear for my early demise. However, I will not leave David Douglas, my life's greatest love, accomplishment, and wish, my three Ds, Daddy, David, and Douglas. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It was um, sensationalized, really. Like, we're hearing her voice. Dejavishni, Mark's attorney, says. That's really a problem. The idea in American law about confronting witnesses is that the accused person has a right to cross-examine them and ask them questions about their motives. Since Julie couldn't be cross-examined, the defense argued that her words shouldn't go before the jury. There'd be no way to confront Julie's testimony against Mark. And while the courts were considering this, trying to determine whether Julie's letter was believable enough to be admitted, and that was the bar for exceptions to the Confrontation Clause at the time, was it believable enough, was it trustworthy enough to justify making an exception? Right in the middle of this, the Supreme Court, 
made a new ruling in a case that raised the bar, basically saying, nah, trustworthy or not, you can't deny the accused the right to confront their accuser. It's too grave a violation of this constitutional right. And so it looked like the jury wouldn't get to hear Julie's letter at all. But Bob argued, geez, for a murderer to get away with killing witnesses that might testify against them? Whew, that would be some kind of chutzpah, which I'm, I'm actually using as a legal term here. Bob was citing a paper by a legal scholar. Entitled The Definition of Chutzpah. Which laid out the idea of an exception to the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause, using this example of a defendant who murders his parents and then begs for mercy on the grounds of being an orphan. That's the definition of chutzpah, and that's akin to what a murderer is asking a court to do, exclude the statements of the victim that he murdered because the victim's not available for him to cross-examine. A Wisconsin Circuit Court agreed, and the letter was allowed in. The jury got to hear Julie Jensen's words. Kenosha County woman dies, poisoned with antifreeze. More shocking, she saw it coming and sent police a letter pointing the finger at her husband. But it actually wasn't clear what the jury would make of these words and how they might affect the outcome for Mark Jensen. And that's because... The letter was kind of strange. While the prosecution pointed to the letter as evidence that Mark was a cruel husband who wanted his wife out of the way, the defense had an entirely different take on things. What if Julie was the one trying to punish Mark? You know, they started laying the groundwork for this notion that Julie wasn't as uncomplicated as she seemed. Ethylene glycol does not kill somebody in an instant. It's kind of a long process, and Julie Jensen had a phone right next to her bed, and Her husband was gone, and if she was feeling sick, she could have called 911, and she didn't. Jensen's defense team was able to get me to really, like, sort of take it back to square one, wipe the slate clean, and ask yourself, could Julie have done this? Could Julie have plotted this in advance? Could she have, you know, decided that I'm going to make my husband pay? Did Julie frame Mark? According to the prosecution and witnesses, Julie didn't know how to use a computer. So all those times, ethylene glycol and other poisoning methods were looked up on the computer in the Jensen's home. That would have had to have been Mark. And I've got to say, that was not terribly believable to me because apparently she used Quicken. You know, she did her bookkeeping on Quicken. And I got to tell you, I haven't figured out Quicken yet. And I use the computer all day, every day. So, I, you know, I'm like, that that doesn't make sense. Um, so, okay, so there, there's one thing. Then these other things happened shortly before she died that I thought were really hinky. Two to three days before she died, and after she's told everybody, by the way, my husband, I think, is plotting to kill me, and I think he's going to poison me. So she has verbalized the notion that, not that he's going to put a gun to her head, but it's going to be some kind of toxic, you know, killing. She calls her neighbor, the one she handed the letter and said, oh, by the way, if something happens to me, um, give this to the police, and says, oh, if you don't see me for the next couple of days... Don't worry, I'm going to be taking this new drug, and I'm not going to—I'm not feeling well. And then she, she also called someone else, her sister-in-law. She called the sister-in-law and said, um, "By the way, I'm probably not going to be feeling good in in a couple days because my doctor is prescribing me this new medicine. So don't worry if you don't see or hear from me." Wow, that to me, was powerful, powerful evidence. If you really believe that you're being poisoned or you're potentially going to be poisoned and you are not feeling well enough that you're not going to be leaving the house, wouldn't you have made the connection that it was possible that maybe what I suspected is true and my husband has poisoned me? You know, it just didn't add up. So that was, that to me was, was really the closest thing to a gotcha kind of moment, like, whoa. Was this all part of an elaborate deception? The trail of breadcrumbs that Julie left behind, 
Where did it really lead? Could Julie have done all the research about ethylene glycol poisoning? Could she have built a house of lies, designed to crash down around her husband after she was gone? Some of this also, I might add, contradicts some of the evidence. You know, for example, the the stuff about she only had one prescription for migraine. You know, the police took a lot of drugs out of there. Um, you know, she had been prescribed just before that some kind of antidepressant um, or anti-anxiety drug. So, you know, some of this isn't necessarily true. And that creep seven years ago, you know, from what I understood, and, and the guy testified, I, you know, he wasn't creepy <laughs> in that sense. You know, he seemed like a really caring person who really liked Julie and Julie liked too. They had been friends. So some of it is, you know, can be contested just in terms of, uh, whether it's actually corroborated by the facts. Does, is, does the letter, when you read the letter, does it strike you as unusual? Well, I have mixed feelings about it because it isn't the way people talk. And there was a lot of conversation about that. Parts of that letter just don't ring right. I fear for my demise. Like, when was the last time anybody who really thought somebody was trying to kill him said, I fear for my demise? There was just some something about it that seemed... Uh, unnatural and staged. And I don't know that, again, I'm not saying that that he didn't kill her. It just, it was just, um, seemed unnatural. The note to me made Mrs. Jensen sound crazy. This is Sandra Scott, one of the jurors. I was absolutely convinced that she was a nut and that she had offed herself and tried to frame her husband for it because she was angry at the fact that he had an affair and the whole thing. And then we started going through transcripts of interviews that he had with um, the police officer. Okay. And it talked about why was there evidence of him looking for antifreeze on his computer, you know, and he said he was, he told him he was researching a different way to winterize his pool. And at that point, I went, in October, you're looking for different ways to winterize your pool? Hmm. You, expletive here, you killed your wife because we had had a pool. And in Wisconsin, as just last weekend, you can have snow, ice, and 20-degree temperatures. So if he hadn't closed his pool down by the middle of October, he was risking expensive repairs. And I suddenly realized that my assumption that she was nuts was wrong and that he murdered his wife. For Sandra, it was this detail about the pool that made everything snap into place. Everybody else believed everything else, but that was the key for me. But I mean, I can come up with a story to explain that. What Sandra says about how she came to her decision just hammered home this deep question that's been messing with us at every turn in this story. How can you tell which details are important? without the framework of the full story? How do you make sure the framework itself isn't influencing that choice of evidence? How do we make sure a story that makes sense actually adds up to the truth? There's uh, something that is commonly known as Chekhov's gun. Anton Chekhov, the the famous Russian playwright, said, if you have a gun in act one of your play, by the third act, that gun needs to be used. Everything in there should have a purpose. And often prosecutors um, will string together a case where every piece of evidence may have a particular purpose and there's some nefarious motive. But in real life, that's not how things work. In real life, people have guns in their houses all the time and nobody gets murdered. People have pornography in their computers and nobody gets sexually assaulted or murdered. None of this happens in a vacuum. This is legal scholar Lisa Kern-Griffin again. There's always a difficult question about what counts as relevant, where we begin. 
These questions about evidence go to the very foundations of our judicial system. Now number 956556, Johnny Lynn, Old Chief versus United States. Lisa told us about a Supreme Court case that's about some fundamental and profound legal issues that take center stage in the Jensen case. We're talking about admissibility of evidence here, I take it. Old Chief is a 1997 Supreme Court case that is sort of about the limits of the rules of evidence. You you look at the piece of evidence and you say, is it relevant, don't you? Yes, and in, in this particular case, there were pieces of evidence that we contended weren't relevant. It was a case all about how to handle decisions about what evidence from a defendant's past are relevant. Now, I'm not going to get bogged down in all the details of Old Chief, and you don't really need to to understand its arguments or how they reverberate through the courts. It's a case that is very often cited, but always for the things that the court said in the course of reaching its decision and not for the decision itself. Old Chief is super interesting because in reaching a decision, the justices argued over the extent to which, in a criminal case, both sides have the right to tell a story that will engage the jury. It can be tricky walking the line between presenting facts to the jury and arguing a case when you tell a story in court. What you say is tied up with what evidence you have, and, as Lisa puts it, the rules of evidence in general, the entire code, operate by subtraction. Rather than giving justices and juries the whole truth, there's this process in our legal system of limiting the evidence that gets admitted into the courtroom. This is kind of an art, calibrating how much of the story they need to hear in order to engage with it intellectually, and how much of the story is too much for them so that they have a lot of emotion and they act out of anger when they make their decision. Trial judges, uh, they are given the instruction that when evidence appears to them unfairly prejudicial, maybe gruesome photographs, background information about the defendant or the victim, they can exclude it, even though it's relevant, even though it's interesting, even though it's compelling. The overall guiding principle tends to be that less is more. But in arguing old chief, and this is why this case is a big deal, the dissenting justices pushed back on the idea that less is more. It's a case in which the Supreme Court said parties are entitled to a certain amount of narrative richness because we need to be compelled um, by what we hear in court in order to render a verdict. There's a sort of moral authority that comes from a compelling narrative that jurors can latch on to. The idea of the moral authority of a really good story is fascinating to us. Trials are not mathematical propositions. They're not logic machines. Um, there's a lot more to evidence than the, the weight of things or um, adding them to each other. It seems to me a lot of evidence gets in in trial routinely to, to simply place a, a crime in its context. For example, the identity of the victim, as the Chief Justice was uh, was alluding to. Do you think the identity of the victim, if it happened to be Mother Teresa, could be kept out of the case? On the grounds of what difference does it make who it was? It was it was a murder, and and uh... victims have names. But if you think about it, there's no reason to name them in a murder case. It's not an element of the offense. It was a dead human being is all that's necessary for the conviction. The identity of the human being makes no difference. Well, the court recognizes in this case that both the government and the defense are often going to need to refer to things that, strictly speaking, don't fit one of the elements or don't line up in some way with a specific instruction that the jury is going to get, but fill in the gaps in between those things and give the jurors some certainty so that they can engage in the really awesome and grave and difficult task of passing judgment on another human being. We talk about victims in cases, even though we don't need to. We talk about the motives with which people act, which is part of the story of what Mark Jensen was up to here. Motive isn't an element of crime, but it's part of the story, and it's something that jurors very much want to understand and want to know. 
The story of the Jensen murder trial puts a spotlight on these critical evidentiary issues. These are questions about the importance of storytelling and the gulf that can form between reality, what actually happened, and what we end up calling the truth. The jury, they didn't end up believing that Julie was so devious that she would have framed Mark. The note and the testimony of the neighbors, you know, kind of did it for some people. Julie's words were part of what convinced them. The letter itself became a very important piece of evidence in the trial. The jury was extremely and acutely aware of all of Julie's sort of articulations of what she'd been through. Um, and so I think that was, it was, I don't, I didn't get the sense that, you know, the, the pornography was a linchpin at all, as much as it was just evidence of a really creepy guy who was controlling and, um, and they considered, you know, uh, an emotional abuser. Ultimately, one of the biggest factors seemed to be that Julie was a very sympathetic victim. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Julie is just such a likable person in, in virtually every description that you hear about her. Uh, she's got her blonde bob, cute as a button. You know, she just looked like a happy, loving, caring mother and, and lovely. I mean, you know, just the all-American mom. Well, Mark, on the other hand... Mark has not really made himself the kind of guy you want to hang out with. Very early on in her reporting, Colleen went to go talk to him. I remember approaching him. And just yelled, Mark, Mark. And he, you know, immediately turned around because, of course, was not expecting it to be a TV camera. And he kind of froze. And he just had this smirk on his face. It's the same smirk that he had throughout the trial. Uh, And even when you look at some of the video of him being interrogated, you know, he just has this smirk on his face. And so, you know, most people who see a smirk take it at face value and just assume this guy is not taking this seriously. Um, you know, he actually, to be honest, I, he was better at responding to us than I expected him to be. He had the smirk on his face, but he was like, yeah, I really wish I could talk to you, but I really can't talk to you. Um, but he handled it right. I mean, that was the right answer. I assume that's what his lawyer told him to say. Um, but, it, you know, it, it didn't play well from the standpoint that people assume that he's laughing. And, and I can't say that he is. I don't know, and I can't say that he isn't. Again, I don't know whether that's how he channels grief or, you know, tragedy. Or, I can't really comment, but I can tell you that it looks like a smirk. Mark Jensen was convicted. At this point, he has spent nearly 10 years in prison. 
But on February 26th, 2020, just as we were getting ready to wrap production on this story, Mark won an appealed case. And now, it looks like he may get a new trial. One where Julie's letter will not be allowed as evidence. Seems like the courts aren't buying the Hutzpah argument. Shortly after Mark Jensen's conviction, the Supreme Court spoke firmly about the danger of stripping defendants of their right to the Confrontation Clause. The notion that judges may strip the defendant of a right that the Constitution deems essential to a fair trial on the basis of a prior judicial assessment that the defendant is guilty as charged does not sit well with the right to trial by jury. It is akin, one might say, to dispensing with jury trial because a defendant is obviously guilty. However, it's still not over. And it's still possible that Mark Jensen's conviction will stand, as the Wisconsin Attorney General's office is appealing this recent decision to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. It's really hard to say how this will play out. I'm not saying they can't convict without that letter. But I really believe, and and I really believe, and the state really believed, it argued, that it was the crux of their case. The letter was the crux of their case. You know, it becomes really hard because so much of what was admitted was hearsay, right? I mean, um, so, you know, you're going to have computer searches and you're going to have toxicology experts, but without the frame of the letter, you have puzzle pieces that are falling all over the place and may not come together in a conviction. Of course, that's Colleen's take. Bob has said that the most important evidence was on Mark's computer, and Mark and the defense maintain his innocence. We have this fantasy of laying the truth bare, of catching out lies and getting to the bottom of what really happened. But it just doesn't work that way. You watch something like Making a Murderer, or you listen to something like Serial, and at the end of it, there's so much uncertainty. Thousands or millions of armchair detectives and skilled and award-winning investigative journalists are doing everything they can to get to the bottom of these cases, and we still don't know at the end what happened. Aspirationally, the purpose of a criminal trial is to find out what happened um, and to assign responsibility for it. But what that boils down to is a kind of version of the truth. Something called legal truth. The, the factual truth is the full, rich, complete picture of what happened. There are very few cases, there are very few human interactions in which the complete factual truth is attainable. It's everything that happened. And an investigation into a charged crime is a snapshot of whatever it is that happened in that case. And then a trial is just a snapshot of that investigation. Not even everything we know is going to emerge at trial. And then when the jury or occasionally the judge renders a verdict, that's just one statement about what was learned at the trial. And it is the legal truth. The, the process yields something that we accept as a substitute for knowing the whole truth of what happened. We never get the whole truth. No matter how much evidence we find, we never get the full entire story. We know that from case after case of exonerations, where we clearly got it wrong. We know it from popular culture, because even the best investigative journalists in the world spending hundreds of hours interviewing people are left befuddled um, at the end of, of their journey um, into cases that at first glance seem like they should be straightforward. Those long-form podcasts, that slow unfolding of what happened in a case, they might be the most accurate representation of trying to find out what happened in the criminal justice system that we've had yet in, in culture. And one of the messages that is coming from that is that there's uncertainty. It's hard to know what really happened. And what we really need to ask is what level of uncertainty can we tolerate? Is it really proven beyond a reasonable doubt? How sure do we have to be? If it is, then we should convict. If it's not, then it's our job to acquit, even if we feel less than comfortable with that. I don't know if Mark did it or not. 
but I think it's possible Julie could have done it. Which I suppose one might argue is reasonable doubt. I mean, it is it is troubling. That's that is something really troubling is that there's really no guidance around what reasonable doubt is. But that's well, it's an, all based on a reasonable person, right? And who is that person? Yeah. One thing I can't stop thinking about with the Jensen case is the seductiveness of storytelling. It can be dangerous, coloring our interpretation of details, facts. The story informs the role of each person, each character. It casts a light on each scene, highlighting certain moments, omitting others. It can be really blinding. But it also anchors us. There isn't really an option of operating without storytelling. We simply can't make sense of anything without it. We need it. And so maybe the truth itself isn't the solid ground we want to believe it is. I think one of the things that we've been a little bit hung up on in this case is that as we look at it, the amount of uncertainty that it raises for us in understanding what really happened makes us think, God, can you ever really know anything in some kind of fundamental way? Does, right? does that happen for you at all in this case? All the time. Really? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, sure. You know, my whole life has been covering cases like this. And I say, you know, that's what reporter heaven is, is when you go and God tells you whether... Mark killed Julie or Julie killed Mark. You know, you just, sometimes you never, ever know. From Luminary Media and Jigsaw Productions, Lies We Tell is produced in association with Story Mechanics. Our producers are Claire Sloan Vance, Brenna Farrell, associate producers Sophie Behrman and Tessa Kramer, our interns are Silver Lifton and Ali Einberg. Our executive producers are Ellen Horn, Stacy Offman, Richard Perello, Joey Mara, and John Schmidt. Original score and mixing by Story Mechanics. Our composer is Darren Gray. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet, Hannes Brown, and Violet Ferton. Special thanks to Jamie Lines, Matt Sachs, and Kenzie Wilbur. Our researcher is Camille Peterson. I'm Alex Gibney, and this is Lies We Tell.